I never realized how hard it was to help somebody and actually not hurt them. There's a lot of good books out there now, like When Helping Hurts or Dead Aid or Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid or many others that, that even help us now understand that a lot of what we do to try to help people actually hurts them, creates dependency, uh, kills innovation and creativity and productivity. And a lot of people are out there doing things that they really believe because they have a good intention to help are helping people, but the reality is it's actually doing more harm than good. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Executive Director of Humanitarian International Services Group, Mike McCausland. I like how one person endorsed Mike on LinkedIn. Mike has more transpiring in his head in one minute than the average man has in an entire day. I have sat dumbfounded listening to this man describe the process of cultural redevelopment and change. There are global thinkers and then there is Mike. Simply put, Mike is a guy that gets things done and the things he's getting done are literally changing the world. That's a pretty incredible endorsement. Here's how my partner, John Ramstead, got that conversation started on this edition of Eternal Leadership. We're here today with Mike McCausland. Mike started out a business career. He's one of those certified smart guys working in nuclear power plants. <laughs> Became an international businessman extraordinaire and has done business and consulting work around the globe with some of the biggest concerns that are out there. And it was really, and you can share this, it was right after September 11th, I believe, Mike, that you took all of your skills from the for-profit world and you moved into the non-profit world. Today, you're part of an organization that is doing just incredible work, both in leadership and humanitarian work in over 130 countries. And really excited to have you on today to talk about this part of your journey. So, Mike, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about yourself and your journey, let the audience get to know you before we, we dive into some of the things you're working on. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for having me on today and uh, very much appreciate the opportunity to share what God's been doing in my life and the opportunities that we've had around the world to be a blessing to others. Uh, as you shared, I started out working in the nuclear power industry, very interesting set of circumstances that brought me to that, uh, to that world. But I ended up going through all of their training and licensing and was licensed as a reactor operator and then a senior reactor operator to run nuclear power plants. And uh, I loved the work. It was quite challenging. But, um, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was very demanding. I, I went from uh, running a nuclear plant into the training department, started designing training programs, and then eventually started my own consulting company in 1985 called McCausland Associates Incorporated, or MAI for short. MAI over the years then began to focus on uh, change management and culture transformation because the power utility industry started deregulating and we had to go from a, a, an entitlement mentality to a competitive environment. Very difficult to do uh, in a power plant or a, a workforce where you have a thousand or more employees. So I did that for a number of years, still do it, even to today. I love the work. I got into it because I was able to help people. Most change initiatives cause a lot of pain, 
We saw a lot of downsizing initiatives where people were laid off and fired and workforces traumatized. And so I got into the work in, in, uh, in the change management industry for that reason. I just loved doing it. 103 nuclear plants in the United States, and I've been able to consult at about 55 of them. So it's been an interesting journey. But, you know, as the journey went on, you get to a point in your life where you want to do something to give back. And I know there's a lot of friends of mine that are in that position, a lot of people that I've talked to that want to help and are not sure how to do that. And that's really what drove and sparked my interest uh, in the humanitarian space. I, uh, I had a scripture that I was praying in the mountains in 2001 in August, and I, God clearly gave me James 1.27. True religion undefiled before the Father is visiting widows and orphans in their distress and keeping oneself unstained from the world. And at that point, I really knew that God had a call on my life to reach out to the less fortunate. I had, had been doing some international missions work with a lot of faith-based groups since the early 90s, but um, we felt that that was a strong call to engage on a larger scale. And we formed an organization called Humanitarian International Services Group, HISG, the day before 9-11. The day before 9-11. The day before 9-11. We had our first board meeting and, of course, woke up the next morning and the world had changed. So, you know, leading up to this, you're on the mountaintop, you're praying, God gives you a verse. Was there, was there something stirring in you that was moving you from consulting and doing change management at very large companies toward what's next in your life, the next new thing? Well, you know, we, as I said, we'd been working in the faith-based arena, the missions world and the faith-based arena for, at that point, for about eight or nine years. And we had seen so much need out in the world, especially overseas in developing economies and emerging countries, and we wanted to help people. And uh, I never realized how hard it was to help somebody and actually not hurt them. There's a lot of good books out there now, like When Helping Hurts or Dead Aid or Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid or many others that, that even help us now understand that a lot of what we do to try to help people actually hurts them, creates dependency, uh, kills innovation and creativity and productivity. And a lot of people are out there doing things that they really believe because they have a good intention to help are helping people, but the reality is it's actually doing more harm than good. And so, Yeah, Mike, what are some good examples of that? Well, I'll give you an example of just how difficult it is to figure it out sometimes. We were working in a village in Africa, and the women were walking an hour and a half uh, each way every day to get water for the village. And so another uh, nonprofit came into the, uh, the village and said, oh, they need water, so they built a well. And uh, when they built the well, it wasn't long after that that the community started falling apart. And you're going, well, what happened? So they, we did some research, and we found that the women, uh, on their hour-and-a-half walk to get water every day each way, spent all the time talking about the problems of the village and working out all their issues. So when they built the well, they actually eliminated the consulting time where the women shared with one another and fixed their problems. So something for us as Westerners and outsiders looking at a simple solution is not always that simple. So unintended consequences. Exactly. So how do you think about it from the perspective of intended consequences? 
you want to go into a village like that and help people have more access to water, but you're an expert on you know change management and cultural change. How do you help a culture like that without hurting it? It's a good question, John, and, and really one of the principles, I've just finished up a course on principles for sustainability, and one of the principles is the idea of transfer of ownership. Who owns the problem? See, in this situation, the problem is owned by the village, so I make the statement that he who solves the problem owns the solution. This is the typical scenario where a missionary goes down and builds a school in Mexico. A tree falls on the roof, and they call you up and say, there's a tree on your roof. Mm. Whose problem is it? So when you work with villages and you go out to try to help people, you never try to solve their problems. As a consultant, I tell people, if a consultant says he's going to solve your problems, run. A consultant doesn't solve your problems. A consultant helps you figure out the solution to your problem because a lot of times you can't see the forest for the trees. And so what we do with villages and, and leaders around the world is we go in and ask them, you know, how they can solve their own problems. But in order to do that, we have to begin to shift some of their mindsets. So we do a lot of, of education on worldview and paradigm shifting and things like that. So they begin to see things they've never seen before. They have their own solutions. They just don't know it. They've been trained to be dependent upon others to solve their problems. The West has been good at exporting that. You know, that's an interesting point. When you when you think about that, they have been trained to seek out others to solve their problems. So when you, when you have a culture where people have been trained to do that, what's the result? Well, let's look at the United States. <laughs> 50% of the population receives some form of, some form of support from the federal government. At this point, most of them believe it's owed to them. So when you begin to create that dependency... People don't try to fix their own problems. It stifles innovation. It destroys dignity and hope and creativity and innovation. You know, we've all been given a gift by God, and we've been given resources by God for our own solutions. But we don't look for them when other people give us free stuff, and we just begin to look to others for our solutions. Then that's happening all over the world. It's not just in the United States, although the United States is a great example of it today. So are you doing work in the U.S. or is most of your work right now in third world countries? Well, it's a good question. Um, in my for-profit consulting company, McCausen Associates Inc., MAI, I deal with some of this in the corporate settings. And we've also been asked to bring our nonprofit activities into the United States. So we're currently exploring opportunities not only in the Denver area, but, but also in other communities around the United States. You know, one of the things that, that we have focused on because you asked me originally, was there a turning point when I was on the mountain praying? And the idea was that we were business guys that just wanted to help. And, of course, it took a long time to understand how to help effectively. I say that it took us, uh, we learned a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. But uh, what we did end up focusing on was two different areas. One was a business development and job creation focus. And we've built a network now in 2,100 countries. We've launched over 2,500 businesses, and 73% of all those businesses ever started are still running. And the other focus that we ended up getting into, because it was another form of sustainability, was the concept of community resiliency, creating community-based capabilities to prepare for and respond to disaster situations. Because if you're prepared 
you fall less and recover faster. Again, community resiliency or sustainability. And most of those resources are within the community so that they don't have to be victims waiting to be rescued if they self-organize their own assets. And so that network now is in 56 countries with about 10,000 badged members. So those are two areas that we focus on internationally for sustainability, but those same two areas we're looking at now bringing into the United States. So are those two separate models based on uh, the needs of that specific culture, or do do these two approaches coexist, kind of a business development model and more of a disaster preparedness model? Yeah, they're two different models. We call them principle-based, crowdsourced models. That means that all the players that implement the models have uh, a role in ownership in making the models better. They're principle-based, meaning there's certain principles that are adaptable to any culture, any society, and so that they can be uh, implemented anywhere. They get customized in some of the how-tos on the ground, but both models are very principle-based. They're both separate models. We call them decentralized models as well because nobody really owns or controls them. They're owned and controlled by the community. Mm-hmm. There's an advisory council that brings guidance and, and uh, oversight, but, uh, but all the members are autonomous. They have their own organizations. They fund their own initiatives, but then they have a way to work together collaboratively through the network. Because of that, for example, the Disaster Response Network is moving an average of $10 million to $15 million per large event now in goods and services by all these disparate members working together through the network because they have a common language and a common roadmap to work together. Well, you know, on the your model, the business development model, I've had, interestingly enough, just in the last couple of weeks, conversations with two or three people that are very interested in taking their business skills and applying it uh, and teaching uh, entrepreneurial business skills using microfinance. They have all these ideas that they want to bring into third world countries. They want to make a difference. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you've done that successfully. And if somebody who's listening, you know, has that on their heart, that that's something that they want to do, how they could plug into you and, 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 and learn from somebody who's already been there and, you know, and figured out a thousand ways not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and another good question, and, and it's not a simple solution. I mean, there are, it is a complex reality. When I look at the 2,500 businesses that we've started, the majority of them have been micro enterprise development. And so what's and an example so of done, a business that was started? Oh, they're as varied as people are different. For example, somebody in, in Nairobi bought eggs, went out the next day and sold them and, uh, and sold them for twice as much, went out and bought two dozen eggs, sold them again. And it wasn't long before he had sold so many eggs and milk that he realized that all the street vendors like him, um, you know, ran out of product before the end of the day. So he, he took some of his funding and started building a warehouse to support the other street vendors so they didn't run out of product, they could keep making money, and now he has multiple warehouses and delivery people that delivers to distribution points throughout the city for the street vendors. So, uh, you know, a very different kind of business. There's others that that, uh, that have done moving companies. There's others that, you know, are, are doing babysitting services. I mean, it's just varied in, uh, in how people do microfinance. In the egg vendor example, did you come in 
uh, is you got to know this individual and help them either with business skills or the financing to get the warehouses or what was your role in his the growth of that small venture? I'll explain how we work, and then I'll come back around and, and add more to your original question because it gets more complex. But okay. when we do business training, um, I mentioned earlier that our business startups in the microenterprise realm are 73% success rate. Yeah. Now, to put that in perspective, a first-time entrepreneur in the United States, a developed country, has a 12% success rate. Second-time attempt, 20%. Third-time attempt, 30%. We're at first-time attempt, 73%. That's astronomical. Why does that work? And you asked, what do we do to help these guys? Well, the first thing we do is we do an assessment uh, with the people that come to our training to see if they're really entrepreneurs. We have 130 questions that we put them through to see if they're entrepreneurs. Because if they're not, the chances of success go down dramatically. Because a lot of people just want a job. And others are managers, but they're not entrepreneurs. And so in our class, we test for entrepreneurship. Then the way that we run the class is that we do a day in the field, a day in the class every other day for over a month. So they actually do a market analysis. They go out and figure out what the market opportunities are, and they pick a business. They come back and they write a business plan. They do a cash flow analysis. They start the business. They run the business all in the class. And then we follow up with them for, every, for a year, every month for a year, to make sure that they're still doing all right. One other thing that we do, in order to start the business, they have to bring their own money. We don't give them money to start a business. So if they don't pass the questionnaire as for an entrepreneur and they don't bring their own funds, they don't even get into the class. Only about one in five get in. So we actually test for it. We train them in a very practical way. We walk them through the startup, and then we follow up with them for a year. That's how we help them become successful, and even creating accountability groups when they do that. So but th that's the micro level. The, the bigger businesses are a little different and a little bit more complex, and we have about 11 principles that we go through when we look at business startups. Now, coming back to your question about especially Western-based business professionals that want to go help in third world countries, it's, it would be a, a complete uh, lack of connection for somebody in the United States that had been in any level, significant level of management to go over and help some of these people in a third world country because they can't relate to them. They can't relate to a micro finance development person in, in the Kabira slums of Nairobi or the streets of, of uh, Niger. You know, they, they're just so different wavelengths. Now, they may relate to some of our people who do the training, the instructors and some of the mentors, and they could help them grow in business skills. And also, there are opportunities where we do advanced business training and people can get engaged with, with bigger skill sets. But again, in most of those cases, we're looking at basic first-line supervisor, first-line manager skills in the United States, uh, but for overseas, you know, they just don't have that. You, so overseas, think, is that an entrepreneurial mindset overseas, that well, first-line manager here in the U.S.? When most of the places that we're starting businesses, they're underdeveloped uh, cultures, which don't do a whole lot of business uh, expertise. So, Basic business practices are the key to success, not advanced quality control and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we went into Yemen and worked with the first generation 
of freed slaves of the poor people. So they were poor people's slaves. Wow. Had just been made free. We started a block factory. They were selling blocks like crazy. They were right on a big intersection. Blocks well, isn't like, they, like building bricks? Yeah, like bricks and decorative blocks. So they just had molds. They dumped the stuff into it, dry it out, and sell them. And they were selling them like crazy. We went back a month later, went into the supply trailer, and it was almost empty. And we asked them, where are your supplies? And their response was, well, we thought you were going to give us more. <laughs> I mean, the basic idea that I should take some of my profit and buy more materials to make more blocks was not part of their equation. Basic business. And so for most startups and stuff in third world countries and emerging economies, it's very, very basic stuff. There's, you know, it's not big silver bullet, you know, super ideas. It's just the attention to detail, customer service, you know, a cash flow management is a huge part of what they need to learn. How open are these, these folks to learning these new skills? Do you, do you have to very, tie this to the outcome? You know, they, they can see where this might get them two, three years down the road. Uh, what, what's well, been working? Most of the people wouldn't be in our classes if they didn't know that, that, uh, that they would be successful because there's others that they've watched become successful. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I think there's another piece that you hint at, though, and that is in a lot of the countries of North Africa and the Middle East, uh, people do not have a good concept of what we, what we would call cause and effect relationship, meaning if I do something, something happens, because most people just believe it's the will of God you know, where I am and what I'm doing, and there's nothing I can do to change it. So we actually built a course called Seeds for Sustainable Change, where we teach cause and effect and, natu and through natural law. For instance, if you plant corn, you get corn. If you water the corn, th it grows. If you put it into good soil, it grows better. So we look at the seed, the soil, the farmer, and the fruit to teach the concept of cause and effect relationships. That's a worldview concept. But in a lot of cultures, they don't, they don't believe that you can do anything to change your world. So if you don't teach them that first, then trying to teach them business doesn't do any good either because they don't even believe that they can do anything to change their world. It's an interesting, you know, culture change. Well, you know, you, you mentioned before the number of people that apply to a program that you're running and, and that get in, and it's small. And what I'm thinking about is how, how do more people – uh, develop the mindset where they could succeed in this program. I think it gets back to what you talked about before is this culture and cycle of dependency that's been taught. And a lot of it has been uh, uh, perpetuated just by what you would think of as, you know, Christian philanthropy and NGOs and government programs. How do you go in and break that cycle of dependency that so many people are, are you know, it has them stuck? Yeah, let me give you an example of something that we did to give you an idea of how to accomplish that. And, and this is applicable anywhere in the world, but it's the idea of changing the way people look at their circumstances. When uh, With this new course on principles of sustainability, I talk about it as a principle of original design. The idea that God gave each one of us a gift, the gift is not for us, it's to serve others with. And if we can figure out how to serve others with our gift, we can generate income out of that because a worker is worthy of his wages. Another component of that original design concept is the idea that God always gives resources. Um, and if we can explore our environment to understand the resources, we usually have the solutions to our problems. So let me give you an example. 
we went into the dumps of Jakarta, which is one of the largest cities in the world, and uh, we asked the people at the dump, what assets do you have? And of course, they looked at us like we were crazy. What do you mean assets? We're at the dump. Nobody's working. We don't have anything. What do you mean assets? And so we said, well, if nobody's working, you must have a workforce that's ready to be employed. And, you know, their mouth kind of dropped open. They looked at us for a minute, and then they shook their head slowly, and they said, yeah, I guess we do have a workforce that's ready to be employed. And we said, well, what other assets do you have? And they said, well, let us think about it. So they went away for a couple of days. They came back after a couple of days, and they said, look, we live in the dump. There's a lot of plastic here. Maybe we could recycle plastic. Now, at that moment, everything changed. This was their idea. This was not our idea. We didn't give them the solution to their problem. They had looked at their environment. They had looked at their resources from a totally different point of view and saw something that had always been there. They just never saw it. And so at that point, we put on a business hat and we said, well, how would you do that? And so we talked them through how that they would recycle plastic. Well, it ended up after that long discussion that we gave them a loan. We didn't give them the money for free. We gave them a loan for $5,000. Now, equivalent, that's about seven years salary for somebody at the dump. So in the U.S., that'd be what, uh, $300,000 loan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we gave them that loan, and what they did is they engaged 17 heads of households, so 17 families were impacted, they built a facility with a roof and four concrete bins. They pulled water out of a river with pipe and a pump. And they washed the plastic in the first bin with soapy water. They rinsed it in the second bin. They bundled it in the third bin and dried it out, or dried it out in the third bin, bundled it in the fourth. And they took it off to the recycling factory that was about three kilometers away. It was actually very close. So they ended up paying off that loan in seven months. So but five years situation. of income they earned in seven months. That's correct. And, 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 and what you simply did is you you approached them in a different way. You created self-awareness about their situation and learning so that they noticed things that are already around them that they hadn't seen before. So then it became their idea that they wanted to execute on versus something you're coming in and giving them to work on. Yeah. Can I give you another example? Yeah, I'd love to hear it. More the better. We, uh, we went to uh, the area where the big tsunami had hit in Indonesia in 2004. Remember, 250,000 people died? Yeah. And we went up to the mountains above the village and began to work with the people up there who were rebels and knew that they had been significantly impacted as well and asked them how we could help and serve. And, of course, in a crisis situation there are acute needs and disaster response so we do needs assessments and disaster response at times but we don't do needs assessment for development we do asset assessments and they're very different but I want to show you the evolution so we went up there and asked them how we could help they said well we need doctors to pull bullets out of our bodies because we can't go to the hospital so we sent a team of doctors that pulled bullets for two weeks they got buckets of bullets out of these people But what it did was created a significant relationship with them, and they knew we were there to really help them. So we began discussion with the village elders uh, about their life and what they were doing, and they said, look, we want to stop doing what we're doing and being rebels and all that, and 
we'd like to do something more sustainable. And so we asked them, what assets do you have? So we shifted from, you know, helping them with a need to looking at development. So, Mike, and it sounds like a big focus that you have is really getting the people to look at local assets. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's part of that concept of original design. They're always there. Okay. We just don't look for them. And so they said, well, we have good fertile land up here. Where maybe we could plant crops. So we said, well, what kind of crops? Now, this was over a couple-month discussion. And they ended up with the concept of chili peppers because they could plot it in a, in a, in a piece of ground that was like 12 or 15 by 15. It, it produced four crops a year, and it was high cash value. So what we did is we established a bank with the village elders. And the village elders, we, it was $10,000 bank, and the village elders would loan out to the, uh, the leaders of the community money to establish their chili crop and that they would have to pay back a quarter of the loan every, uh, every time they, they, they had a crop, which was four times a year. So in a year, the loan was paid off. So they started doing chili peppers. And what happened very soon after that is everybody started helping each other. And that's very unusual with those kinds of people up in the mountains. Everybody's fairly independent. Well, they started helping each other. Why did they, they start helping the, each other? Because they were next in line for the grant from the bank. Or the, not the grant, the loan. If, they, if their neighbors got their crop in and paid their loan back, they were next in line to get the loan. Oh, so I was so going to do one loan at a time, and as soon as it was paid off, I had another loan to give. Yeah, except with the size of the bank, they could do 10 or 12 loans at a time. But there was quite a bit, you know, there was quite a few people in the village. So it was still the fact that if we helped one another, we'd, you know, more people had access to the loans. And so what happened in, in uh, the not, not long down the road is everybody was doing chili peppers. Well, then they started saying, well, what do we do with the women? And so they started doing women empowerment projects, and they started making things and selling them and doing food production and other, other things for women activities. And pretty soon all the women were working. And then they said, well, now what do we do? And so they started doing village infrastructure projects. They started doing water and sewer and electricity and roads and so this whole village was being transformed because they had a financial engine for transformation of the community. And it wasn't long before other villages started knocking on their door going, what happened to you guys? And, um, and so they started loaning their bank to other villages and spreading this concept of self-sustainability. Well, we're now about eight, nine years into that project. That $10,000 bank has been recycled over 70 times without a single default loan. That's an enviable track record that every U.S. bank would like to see, wouldn't it? But, it, but an example, again, of looking at your environment, understanding what the resources are, and begin to create that self-sustainability from the gift and the resources God's given you. Well, and that all started with you reaching out, developing a friendship, and in in. Oh, through that, allowing these villagers to look at their resources and their gifts from a very different perspective. Yeah, yeah, and that's what really creating sustainability is all about. And really, I think that's what the message of the gospel is all about: is understanding, you know, what God's given us to help others. You know, as we as we wrap up here, Mike, what are some thoughts you'd like to leave with people who are listening to what you're talking about, who are really energized about making a difference, transferring skills, you know, what, what do they do next? How do they get involved? How do they get in touch with you? 
Well, they can get in touch with me through uh, our website, scworldwide.org, which stands for sustainablecommunitiesworldwide.org. And I'll just add in, um, on our journey, after 13 years of running HISG, we gave away over $8 million. We've worked in 130 countries. As I said, we learned a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. But the learning for us was so significant that we actually changed our name from HISG because humanitarian, humanitarian international services group, humanitarian denotes aid or free stuff which creates dependency. And that lesson for us was so significant that we changed the name, rebranded the organization, put up the new website, now calling it Sustainable Communities Worldwide to teach these uh, principles of sustainability that we've learned both for business development and for disaster preparedness and response. So they can get a hold of us on the website at scworldwide.org. My email address is mmccausland, M-M-C-C-A-U-S-L-A-N-D, at scworldwide.org. I'll also give you my phone number, 719-337-4913. Again, 719-337-4913. But um, people can get a hold of me in any of those ways. And our, our desire, our mission really, is to empower local leaders in building local capacity to break dependency on outside resources. And that's what we do in the nonprofit realm. In the for-profit realm, we do a lot of strategy development and deal with a lot of these same issues, but from a very different perspective, that of a for-profit company. You know, I mentioned earlier one of the principles uh, of sustainability is the idea of whose problem is it and transferring ownership. You know, one of the things I do with executive coaching and management is to teach people how to empower their workforce for ownership. Because when you solve everybody else's problems, they're going to come looking to you to solve their problems. Uh, And sometimes I, I remember with one guy that I was working with with executive coaching, I had to write out a three by five card and just stick it on his desk and stick it in his car. And basically all it said was, what would you recommend? So I'm not going to tell you the solution. I'm going to ask you for your recommendation because if it's your recommendation, it's your solution. And if it's not accurate, I'm going to give you some more information you might have not have thought about. And I'll ask you again what your recommendation is. How do we transfer ownership? And I think that's one of the biggest things, whether we're leading a for-profit company or a non-profit company trying to help people is trying to identify whose problem is it so people take ownership of their own problems and we help them solve them, but we don't solve them for them. Well, Mike, that's, that is a great thought to end this up with. And I really hope people get in touch with you. Is there anything that your organization, the nonprofit side needs now? Is it volunteer time, manpower, people to fund some of the microfinance that you're doing or well, thanks for asking. I mean, we're in the process, having rebranded and, and done a lot of shifting ourselves, we're actually in the process of creating sustainability for our nonprofit. I asked the question in one of our latest newsletters, should a nonprofit generate its own income to, to uh, be self-sustainable? And I said that, that we believe uh, at SCW that that is the future of the nonprofit world and that it should be no different for us. So we're actually in the process of beginning to transition the global networks, the IDRN, the Disaster Response Network, for example, has 10,000 badge members. And we're looking at starting to implement a $10 per year fee for the badges to create self-sustainability for the network. 
And so the transition plan is about a two to three year plan. So obviously in our own situation with a nonprofit, we need to generate some some nonprofit gifts to get over the trans or get through the transition period to create our own sustainability. So anybody that's helping us now is actually helping us get to the point where we don't need any funding in the future. So but we do at this point need something uh, to make it through the transition period. So thanks for asking for that. Well, I hope people get involved. I love what you guys are doing, and thank you for making the time. And, uh, you know, it might be interesting to have you come on as an update here down the road. And also, uh, I would love to have a conversation with you about change management inside of an existing large or even small company, because I think that is one of the hardest things and biggest challenges for a lot of leaders is actually manage, managing that change as they grow and move forward, whether it's here in the U.S., whether it's an organization outside of the U.S. in the nonprofit world. But that is a a very clear skill that leaders need to be uh, to master, quite frankly. And I, I call it a survival skill for the 21st century. I mean, change today is accelerating. It's not just going up. It's accelerating. And so the environmental landscape and the competitive landscape can change literally in a single day. I mean, look what happened to oil dropping from over $100 a barrel, now under 50 in just a matter of a very short period of time. Yeah. Everything can change. So learning to adapt an organization to a changing environment is a critical skill set. And from a lot of the studies done in the 80s and 90s, and this is when I started back in the 80s, a lot of the studies done over the two decades since then have shown that one of the greatest challenges to the success of any change initiative is not necessarily the goal or the outcome of the initiative, but how you implement it. Because there's a common uh, phenomenon uh, entitled the traumatized survivor by a guy named Kim Cameron out of the University of Michigan Social Research Institute. He, he coined that term a while back, traumatized survivor. So I have a whole section on traumatized workforce. And I tell people that once you damage the workforce, it's a long road home. And so when you're implementing change, how you work that change through the workforce is critical to think about because the impact cannot be underestimated. And most organizations do not achieve their goals from change initiatives because they traumatize the workforce. So big issues. And I look forward to talking with you about them. Yeah, and if you do it wrong and you do have that trauma in the workforce – undoing that takes so much more time and energy and effort and cost and productivity than just taking a step back and doing some planning and doing it right up front. That's why I said it's a long road home. And, yeah. and you can see evidence of it in a lot of organizations. Some of the big change leaders that come in and blow the organization up and get great performance in the short run, I tell them, show me the organization two, two years after they leave, and then we'll see how successful they were. Because yeah. that's when all the damaged culture comes back out. No doubt. Well, Mike, thank you so much for making the time. This was really helpful to me. It gets my, uh, my energy here flowing and focused on some things I know that I want to accomplish this year. And uh, just thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on, John. Look forward to talking again. If you'd like to learn more about Mike or Humanitarian International Services Group, be sure to go to our show notes, eternalleadership.com slash 079. That's eternalleadership.com slash 079. That link is also embedded in the summary of this MP3. So if you're listening on your smartphone, tablet, or computer, you can just click that link and it'll take you right to the show notes page. Next time on Eternal Leadership, author and retired pastor, Gareth Elkins. I have a 
a schedule where on Wednesday mornings, uh, I live in a little community called Jacksonville, Oregon, and above our city is about 20 miles of absolutely stunning hiking trails. Mm-hmm. I get my morning done, I head up in the mountain, I says, I'm yours, Lord, and I walk up there. I don't take a Bible with me. I don't take notepad with me. I am just present without being productive. And I found that, and I've been doing this for years, that there are not many margin spaces in the life of a leader where you're not required to be productive. And here's what I find with leaders, is that it's bone on bone, there's no cartilage. And if you're in a scenario, in a circumstance where you're serving and you don't have margin time, for me it's hiking, it could be a guy getting on a motorcycle. I know that Swindoll likes to, or used to, he likes to get on a motorcycle and get some bugs in his teeth. And so you got to have a place where you're not productive so that you can end up releasing what God gives you in the future. That's what margin Garris talks about some of the stories in his book, The Leadership Rock, A Journey of a Life in Leadership, including talking on the subject you just heard about, one that's very close to my heart, margin. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. <laughs>